0: bell choir strikes again. I don't know about you guys, but um, uh, when I was in elementary school we used to have a, an actual bell to signal classes. You remember those days? Yeah. All the nerdy kids would volunteer to ring the bell, I remember. <laughs> it had a huge thing with a big handle on it. it was, uh, I'm not sure I ever rang the bell, but I just remember the kids coming out and they were like, oh, ding, ding, It's really funny. Well, last time I was in Australia, I went back to visit my elementary school. This is another funny thing. And you know how when you have this memory of when you were younger, to me, the, I, I remember the school just being huge, you know, everywhere you went was huge, because, you know, you're 20 inches tall, everything's a long way away. And when I went, it was like tiny, I was looking around, I was like, these grounds are nothing. We used to have a big playing field, and there was a, uh, a really long angled slope that went down to it, and it was just like, I thought it was like 150 feet long, I even had a couple of fights on there, we down the hill, was like huge, I wonder when it was like 12 foot long, it was like a little squail. It's like, my memory was shot. The good old days. I lived in England um, a while, for an, a, a number of years ago, and I always remember this TV commercial that was on, uh, on TV there in England. And it was advertising a newspaper in England called The Guardian, The Guardian Newspaper. And the commercial was intended to highlight the very independent position that this newspaper took. And it starts with a view down a city street, down the sidewalk of a city street. And at the corner of the street, there stands a punk. And you'll remember back in those days in the 80s, punks were the hoodlums, the soccer hoodlums of of the day. So they were at a pretty bad rap. And behind him, as he stands there, a car pulls up. And the punk glances and then he starts sprinting down the road toward you, the viewer. And you look at that and you say, Oh, I get it. The car that pulled up and the people in it, they're after the punk. He glanced, saw him, took off running. And then the commercial fades to black. And then it gives the viewer a new angle from behind the sprinting pump. And you now see that he's actually running full tilt toward an older gentleman who has a briefcase in his hand, on the sidewalk. And the older gentleman, he hears the running hoodlum, as he approaches him, he hears that commotion behind him, and he turns and he clutches his briefcase to himself, to sort of stop it from being stolen, to protect himself. And you, the viewer, see this and you think, oh, now I get it. He's about to hit the man and steal his belongings. And then the commercial fades to black. And then it gives the viewer a third, elevated camera angle. And the building that the older gentleman was passing is being remodeled and a pallet of building materials is being lowered. And it's not really far above the man's head. The pallets wobbling; the materials are about to break loose. The punk runs into the man, pushes him against the building wall, and saves him from injury just as the building materials crash to the sidewalk. It's one of the most thought-provoking commercials I've seen over the years, because in the space of 30 seconds, an advertising agency has shown you how many poor and incorrect decisions you can make when you have only a part of the story. It's entirely human for all of us to make judgments. We do it all the time. We've survived as a species on this planet because of making judgments. Judgments like, that road looks dark and there's a group of people hanging out on the corner and, I don't know, it's kind of late at night, they might not have my interest at heart, maybe I'll take another road. Judgments like, I'm out in the field, there's a storm approaching. Maybe I should get indoors before the lightning comes. Or judgments as simple as oh, that milk has been sitting out on the counter for quite a while. Maybe I better toss it, might get sick. In some instances, believe it or not, these judgments require a degree of prejudice. I'm sure everyone here has heard of the term gut feeling or a gut reaction. You know, the president uses it, uh, seems to be quite fond of the term. You've probably used the term yourself at times. Essentially, a gut reaction is prejudice repackaged. Oddly enough, it's done as much as anything to save us from extinction on planet Earth. And I bet everybody here has examples of a time or two in life when your gut just told you something wasn't quite right. Like this story. In 1933, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, three Etruscan warriors, warrior sculptures, were finally put on display. They were magnificent. They stood as tall as eight feet, and they were said to have been from the 5th century BC. These magnificent ancient pieces, recently discovered in Italy, and now displayed in New York, they caused quite a stir in 33 lovers of ancient art came in droves to view them. Art experts came too. And among them, there was a ceramics expert named Joseph Noble, who eagerly waited to see them unveiled. But when he finally laid eyes on them, the one word that came to his head he would later say was fresh. They looked fresh. Not a word that he would ever have associated with ancient art that had spent over 2,000 years in the ground. And despite verification of authenticity by all sorts of experts, his gut feeling told him something just wasn't right. But he just couldn't say why. And it, it turned out he was right. The pieces turned out to be elaborate fakes, and they stood there for 28 years before they were finally discredited. Years before, a gentleman said, I don't know, something just isn't right. Oddly, we were created with a sense based on prejudice and quick judgments to help us survive in life. I reckon it's no wonder that the central theme of Christ's ministry includes, I believe, two main things. It's like Christ's ministry stood on two main legs. First avoid prejudice, avoid judgment, accept one another as fellow humans on a journey with God, and strive, Christ said, to love one another as I've loved you. And, secondly, when you fail, and you will, to some extent, because it's a tool we use to protect ourselves, then secondly, forgive one another as your God has also forgiven you. It's no coincidence that the Lord's Prayer we just spoke includes the words, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And by the way, I'm convinced that God appreciates so much more if we're very slow to take offense. Just let things roll over us. You'll find that Paul writes quite often on this topic in the epistles. We've been given the ability, and I believe even the responsibility, to judge our world so as to survive and live well in it. It's part of common sense. But with that need to judge comes enormous responsibility. We have to work really hard at taking in enough information before we reach any type of conclusions because it's not naturally in us to judge fairly. Judging is kind of a prerequisite to surviving in life, but being a fair judge, not naturally in us. Only God is a fair and just judge. I've always liked a very illustrative story in the Old Testament. Perhaps you'll be a a lover of it too, or at least remember it. It's set in ancient Israel during the reign of Israel's first king, King Saul. Saul had begun his reign devoted to serving God. But over time, Saul had begun to incorporate certain pagan ideas in his life. He had left the idea of there being just one God, and instead had embraced uh, embraced Israel's neighbors and begun to worship other gods. And this had, of course, displeased God. So God summoned Samuel... And he told him, I have a task for you to perform. Go, he said to the household of Jesse in Bethlehem. Take a heifer to sacrifice and invite Jesse to come with his sons. I have chosen the next king of Israel from among them. So Samuel follows God's instructions. And during the ceremony, he asks Jesse to present his sons. And Jesse was proud to oblige from oldest oldest youngest, tall, strong, robust men, the kind of men that looked like leaders, the kind of men who looked like, yeah, they were probably in control. And each time, God said, no, Samuel, this is not the one, until all seven of Jesse's sons had been paraded before Samuel, and Samuel was forced to ask, is this all of them? Are there any more? And Jesse replied, well, there's the kid. He's in the field with the sheep. And Samuel said, well, you better get him. And when the youthful David finally arrived, God informs him that this ruddy little youth is his choice for the next king of Israel. Contained in this story and the exchange between God and Samuel, is a very telling passage of Scripture. It's found in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, where God is recorded as saying this, You, Samuel, see that a person is tall or handsome. This is not how I choose. People judge others by what they look like, but I am God. I judge people by what is in their hearts. Well, later God would become human for a time. And that same sentiment, that same approach is repeated by Christ throughout his ministry. Christ told a parable once, you'll remember. Two certain people who stopped into a church to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And in its day, these two characters couldn't be more different. Opposite ends of the spectrum. The Pharisee, the embodiment of exemplary human behavior. Everyone wanted to be a Pharisee. The tax collector, the embodiment of the lowliest of human beings. No one aspired to be a tax collector. The Pharisee, he stood at the front of the church, and he reiterated to God just how good he was, how much he tithed, how often he fasted, and how glad he was that he wasn't that dude at the back of the church. And the tax collector, he simply stood at the back of the church. He admitted his unworthiness, and he asked God to forgive him. And Christ said, I tell you, this sinner, he went home forgiven. God heard his prayer, he searched his heart, and he saw a sinner who knew that he needed God the Pharisee, on the other hand, well, he thought he was God's equal. Maybe God even needed him. See, the main problem with humans, the main problem with us, is the distinct inability to know the true intent, the true feeling that compels people around us to make the choices they do. At first glance, With a pretty rigid set of opinions applied, a woman divorcing a husband seems a rough or wrong choice. But we have never lived a day under their roof. We have no idea if that woman sacrificed 20 years of her life and her dreams so that her husband could follow his. And got no thanks. And one day she said, I deserve to be able to follow mine. Dreams, by the way, that God put in her. At first glance, with a rigid idea of how life goes, dropping out of college is a really bad idea. And then a year later, Bill Gates and Paul Allen wheeled a thing called a computer out of their garage, and our life changed. At first glance, with an image of leadership as being strong and forceful and uncompromising, the person in the room who sits and listens intently to everybody, quietly gains trust, and shows that they can give some ground to get a little done, those people don't seem like leadership material. But that person might be the only one who can actually get a deal done. In every instance of every human interaction in all of human history, only God had the ability to read intents and search our innermost thoughts. The psalmist was very aware of this when he wrote in Psalm 139, of which we read a little You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Galatians 5.22 mentions the fruits of the Spirit. And you'll remember them, the attributes we develop as God works with us. You'll remember them that they're love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, when you sift through each of these fruits, these characteristics, they actually give us a greater ability to get along with one another. And if we exercise them, it gives God way more room to be able to do His work. In a sense, we get out of the way of God. The motto of this church is open hearts, open minds, open doors. This is really only possible if we, as much as humanly possible, reserve judgment and leave it to God. People will come in through the door, reserve judgment, they're here because God asked them to be here. Because when we look at people, we search our experiences our preconceived notions, and then we make a judgment. And we often do so like the commercial showed poorly with incomplete information. God searches our thoughts while we're even still contemplating them. We scan the surface, but God, He reads our intentions and He searches our heart. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, bringing us into service with you, and we know that you have plans for greater things to happen in the world. We ask that you help us to understand that those plans may not in fact gel with our thoughts in our head, and ask us to, and have us to approach life to approach those that you bring to us in a non-judgmental manner, because we know that you've searched their heart just the same as you've searched ours, and that you run the show and we don't. We thank you that we can be in your service. We ask that you help us, that we can not stand in the way of the work that you have ahead of you and ahead of us. we do so in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.